Greetings from the humongous. Sir, rebel ships are coming into our sector. Good. Our first catch of the day. I don't know what the hell's in there. It's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Give us the tools and we will do the job. Get to the chopper! Hey, Dr. Joe, no time for love! Hey, hey, Sal, how come getting a brothers on a wall here? You want brothers on a wall? Get your own place, you can do what you want to do. You are nothing but unorganized, grabastic pieces of amphibian shit! Society made me what I am. That's bullshit. Yeah, that's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. What did the pajamas look like? I don't know. They were jammies. They had Yodas and shit on them. It's such a fine line between stupid and clever. You send one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago. Living in the 80s. I love that song, Steve. <laughs> I love it. Very nice. We're back. Uh, back. Film Driven. I'm Andre Shane. I'm Steve Hask. And, uh, well, here we are, Steve. The leaves are yellow and orange and sometimes blood red. Yeah. Halloween is here. That's right. <laughs> the air is blowing around. It's a nice uh, October day. It's pretty cool. And uh, we're all walking around in masks, Steve. Yeah. What the hell? What the hell's going on? I know what's going on. It's Halloween, Steve. It is. It's Halloween. Just in time for us to talk about the horror films of the 1980s. And the 1980s, of course, I feel is associated with many things. But I think horror takes the back seat when people think of the, the films that came out in the 1980s. But in fact... Horror was an absolute huge component huge. of what we think of as 80s. Huge, cinema. yeah. 80s was the heyday of Fangoria magazine. Uh, as we'll talk about soon to be, there was a new Freddy or Jason movie uh, every, every other year. day. Yeah. <laughs> every year. Yeah, it's it, it's definitely, and as you know, as we started doing a little research for this uh, podcast, uh, it became obvious just how many great horror films came out of the 80s. But But, you know, I have to... I have to make a, a confession, Steve, like you're, you know, everybody has an Achilles heel. Sure. My Achilles heel has, to some extent, been horror, but specifically, like, the slasher horror films that people really associated with the franchises of the 1980s. We're talking about Freddy films, right? We're talking Friday about the Friday the 13th. Halloween. And the Halloween Child pictures. Play. Well, I mean, for me, like, generally, horror has never been my favorite genre. But the slasher films never really appealed to me. So I really don't know much about them. I only started, like, I only saw some of them recently. And I think after Psycho, I just felt like I, I'm all done with the slasher. I, I, I didn't feel I needed to watch the Friday the 13th Part 4, for example. It didn't yeah. seem necessary. Was I wrong? What, <laughs> what was I missing, Steve? Well, yeah, I mean, they uh, these movies are not... Considered high cinema, they're uh, they're delivering on the thrills. Uh, most of the slasher movies of the '80s, we'll get into talking about them more. But uh, you know, they're fairly exploitative. But unlike the exploitative horror movies of the past, these were um, these made a lot of money. These were popular. They played in like the multiplexes. They were not just consigned to the drive-ins of the world. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, and starting probably with Halloween in the late 70s, which was a monster hit, mm -hmm. and then the original Friday the 13th was in 1980, then 
felt like the 80s was just the decade of slasher movies. Like, whenever you think about slasher movies, you very much associate with the 80s. Uh, you know, I, I know some critics have tried to tie it into the, uh, the Italian Gialli movies of the uh-huh. 60s and 70s, uh-huh. which, um, you know, Dario Argento, Mario Bava, I think is the guy's name, who uh, they made these movies that were, if, if you've never seen them, they're kind of stylistic, um, really to me the epitome of substance over, or style over substance. That's, you would take like a crime film and it would be like your fairly standard murder plot, you know, like somebody turns up dead, but it would always be done kind of gory. Like if a woman got killed, it wasn't just like, oh, she got shot. It'd be like, she'd got stabbed six times and the blood sprayed all over the curtains. And um, a lot of people say those are kind of an influence on the slasher movie. And personally, having watched this, some of these slasher movies, I think that's kind of a little uh, highfalutin wishful thinking there. Almost I'm giving not, him too much credit, yeah, is that I'm what you're so saying? I'm not so sure that the guy who's, yeah. you know, the, the makers of Friday the 13th Part 5 are like, you know, we're really going to Dario Argento this shit up here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, having, having successfully managed to avoid all of these films when I was a kid, I always... I always felt like they were like pure manipulative, you know, you know, the, like, yeah. like the term uh, exploitation cinema comes to mind. And that to me is what those movies seem like. They were manipulative. They were just there to make me jump. They didn't have a lot of point or anything to say that didn't particularly appeal to me. The violence, the extreme gore didn't appeal to me in those films. So I never really went and saw them. So I don't, honestly, Steve, what is the difference between Jason and Michael Myers? Well, uh, you know, I've forgotten some of the, uh, in later installments, there becomes a uh, supernatural element to both of these characters. They, uh, They eventually, the fact that they come back over and over again, both series do try to explain why these characters are in fact immortal. But um, or impossible uh, to kill, right? I mean, it, you can't kill yes. those guys. And their initial uh, conceiving, those characters are very similar. Um, you could almost argue that the biggest difference is just uh, the setting of where these stories take place. But both of those characters started out as humans who were mentally deranged, who had kind of a fucked up childhood, and then it resulted in them uh, really wanting to slaughter horny teachers. Uh, Michael Myers, his origin story, uh, I guess it's mostly for Andre. But, uh, well, I mean, uh, I, Steve, Michael I, Myers, 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 real quick, is he was an escaped mental patient. He had killed his parents when he was a child. They locked him up, and eventually he escapes and then comes back to the town he was born in to try and kill his sister and winds up killing some other people. But uh, Jason is, you know, is, uh, his mother was actually the original killer in the first Friday the 13th. Ooh, ooh. That was the... the... The twist. At the, the twist end. at the it, end. It was a mom, after all. But then Jason quickly picks up the killing up, mantle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, but, but it, it was always obvious to me that, like, both of those particular franchises really owed a debt, a debt to Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Sure. Which to me was like sort of created that, that, that whole thing. I mean, we're talking about a main character. Who is the murderer in many cases, you know, so your protagonist is the antagonist a lot of times. Uh, Then you have the element of psychiatric instability, mommy issues, and the result is raging maniac. Yeah. And, and, uh, of course, like, horror, 
again, I think owes a big debt to Psycho because I think Psycho was a time, was, was that moment where an A-list director took up the mantle of making a horror film. Yeah. And Psycho is also interesting because one of the, the big things that happened in these horror movies is, like you say, the killer kind of becomes the main character. Uh, even if the killer, you know, in theory, all these movies, not in theory, but <laughs> all these movies do have a plot where there's like a protagonist who is not the killer. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and right. In theory, the point of the movie is for your hero or heroine to escape the killer. To just survive. But, and you know, a lot of cases, the killer is the only character that continues throughout the series. Sometimes there's a, a human or two who overlaps, but a lot of times it's the killer is the, the thread that unites everything and in psycho you could argue that the movie literally you know it famously kills off its kills main off character. His protagonist right spoiler alert for a sorry, 70 year old sorry movie. people and uh but it kills off its protagonist early so then within the movie the protagonist shifts from <laughs> the uh the victim to the, the killer to the killer right and then the 80s that's what it's all about where people just started to realize um like, these movies quickly become camp, uh, intentionally or not. Yes. And even one of the big things that, uh, maybe this is your case, Andre, that's with me. Like, I, I really love horror movies. I like to watch a lot of them during uh, October. It mm-hmm. gets me in the mood of the season. Right, at this time of year. But I'm constantly on the hunt for horror movies that actually scare me, that right. I actually find frightening. And most of these slasher movies, like, maybe the first installment scary but then after that, yeah. it's basically every movie. Um, it's they're not particularly scary, like right. the you well know, because they, they're predictable because you know where they're most of them are going. Well, but then the creativity comes in how the kills are executed. Right. Like, like it's not so right. much that you're wondering if someone's going to die. It's just like, oh, let's come up with even more outlandish ways to actually kill someone. Yeah. And see, and that to me doesn't equal good filmmaking, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, I think most people can come up with, you know, several creative ways to kill somebody in, in a given situation. I'm sure you could come up with at least three ways to knock me off right now. I've been working like on it, Like, yeah. right, right there. We're in a dangerous environment. We're elevated. I'm not going to tell you where we are. It's a secret location, <laughs> of course, but nonetheless. I'm just saying, how hard is it to do that? So I've always looked down on these films. Which one of these films should I watch if I've not seen a single Friday the 13th film? Is there one that you particularly enjoy? You know... I don't really like the Friday the 13th movie, so that's a bad right. example. Okay, all right. Yeah. Okay, how about but, uh, Halloween? Halloween, the best one, is still the first one. Right, of which course. Which is from the 70s. Right. But John Carpenter, definitely seen that one. John Carpenter. Halloween, um, Halloween's probably my favorite of these these bigger franchises, partly because it at least tips its hat at trying to be scary. Right. Like, Halloween never really got that camp. It got, right. uh, there's a couple late 80s ones that are bad, but... Um, yeah, I mean, like, the first Halloween is great. And also, I recently uh, rewatched the very first A Nightmare on Elm Street, uh-huh. which uh, has a lot to recommend. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. And that one does fulfill, I mean, later installments uh, just openly were comedic, or at least satiric, right. I guess. Right, But uh, the very first Friday, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, watching it at home, I wasn't all that scared, but I will say... Even then, you could kind of imagine that if you were in the theater when that came out, 
that might have scared the shit out of you. Like, it's decent. There's a lot of jump scares. There is. A lot of surprises. And a lot stuff. of surprises. And I'm sure most most of our listeners know, you know, the concept of Freddy is that he attacks you in, in your dreams. Right. But I really, a hats off to that franchise for embracing, like, the possibilities of a character who's not bound by physics. Absolutely. Like, Freddy, or I'm sorry, not Freddy, Michael Myers and Jason, you know, are still, even if they're hard to kill, they're guys with a weapon. Right. You know, they usually an axe or a friggin' yeah. So like you know, while yes, you can hit them with a car or something, and they seem to be alive, but it's not like they can fly or you know. Whereas Freddy can like make his arms fifteen feet long, or he can turn into a bat, or he can turn into a phone or a bed or right. And uh, so the movie does a good job about you know like well, if there's no rules, let's have some fun with this. Yeah. Which also can be terrifying because then Freddy's everywhere. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And 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 you know, Nightmare on Elm Street films are made by Wes Craven, and and I think he's a he was a, uh, a very skillful filmmaker actually. Yeah. Uh, and I think I agree with you. Those movies do have both a good mixture of uh, jump scares and also kind of psychological horror, or or these turnarounds, you know, where. Somehow he makes the fa- that that trick, you know, where is it a dream? Is it reality? Is what I'm seeing yeah. actually happening, or is it just he makes that work over and over again, and and somehow actually makes it work over and over again. So, yeah, I I do uh, I do like the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, movies quite a bit. I that may be my favorite horror French franchise that came out of the '80s. But the overall, like I think the best horror films of the 80s do not actually come from franchises or that those kind of films now nightmare on elm street has elements of uh the slasher genre right i mean even though they are psychedelic and happen in dreams they are connected to the freddy and halloween films um not freddy i'm sorry the 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 friday the 13th and the halloween films um kind of at the marrow but there's a lot of other films that are not really like that at all and kind of come come at horror from a different perspective either a sci-fi perspective or a comedy perspective and some of these films steve are huge budget pictures and this is sort of my my thinking process about the evolution of the horror genre taking place in the 80s and the 80s being a critical error to the modern horror genre as as it stands, and maybe in some ways the pinnacle of the horror genre, because there's so many mainstream, extremely successful films. It's the mainstreaming of the horror genre to some extent. I think once Jaws came out, Steven Spielberg was not a household name before Jaws. He was somewhat after Jaws, and of course it made his career. All of a sudden Hollywood realized, like, hey, there's a huge audience for scary movies. Yeah. And then Kubrick comes out and makes The Shining, which is a film based on a Stephen King novel. Stephen King is giant at the time, right? Everybody is reading Stephen King novels. And all of a sudden you have this perfect storm of like high-end filmmaking and kind of tapped into people's desire for scary movies. Yeah, The Shining is an interesting hybrid for a lot of reasons. Um, but so one of the things about the horror genre is, um, you know, like there are really big movies in the 30s, you know, with the Universal Monster movies that right. were considered horror movies. Like, they would use the term horror. Right. 
But then and they were kind of A films, you know. They yeah. were they were top top of the line. Top, yes, I always. Thought. And people like Bela Lugosi and things were stars for a while. Um, but then in the '60s and '70s, horror was more confined to like B-level movies, drive-in. At least at least people would openly embrace the term horror. Uh, there are a lot of great what we now consider horror movies made at those times. Sure, the Hammer films. Yeah, or even some of the more suspenseful things like Don't Look Now. Or so. There's a lot right. of great moody movies from the 70s that I love or a lot of some of my favorite horror movies. But the people who made those movies, like they were hesitant to like embrace the term horror. So even if you were, if you were, made, if you were say, Roman Polanski, you wouldn't consider Rosemary's Baby like a horror movie. Like, you know, Roman Polanski would right. say, like, I made a suspense movie. Like, right. the idea of calling it a horror movie was almost like saying you made a porn. Like, they were right. like, no, I, I'm a real filmmaker. I don't make that kind of shit. Right. But um, but then in the 80s, you know, it it was okay to say that. <laughs> like you get, And so, so here we had Stanley Kubrick, who by that point is a very... You know, he's he's Stanley Kubrick by 1980. Yeah, de- by 1980, definitely, definitely regarded as one of the greatest filmmakers. Yeah. So then, living. then you have one of the greatest filmmakers is like, I'm gonna do a Stephen King book, and everybody's like, Well, Stephen King writes horror books. Like, there's no way around it. This is right. a horror movie. Well, and, and and he does a popular one that a lot of people have read. Yeah. You know, boom, Stephen King's adaptation of the, of the and you know. And The Shining, I guess, so The Shining kicks off the 80s. It comes out in 1980. Yeah. Um, stars, one of the biggest stars of the 70s, right? right? Jack Nicholson. Right. Um, the Stephen King hated it, famously. He uh, still does. Like, still yeah. does, I believe. Uh, but The Shining Never is, come around. It, it kicked off the 80s, and The Shining is still, for my money, the best horror movie ever made. Like, if you ask me, it's number one. It's hard to beat. It's yeah. it's genuinely scary. It still surprises me every time. It 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 it's a perfect manipulation of the audience, uh, in my view. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's The Shining, Steve. But <laughs> ironically, it didn't make a huge amount of money when no, it came it wasn't out. A, like, it wasn't a big hit. Like yeah. it doubled its production bu- budget. Uh, but now, of course, over the years, it's generally beloved, let's be honest. You know, some people still don't like it, like Stephen King. But most people, it certainly pops up on any list, not only of quality, but if, you know, as I was saying, if you're looking for a horror movie that you're like, what what would actually scare me? Right. The Shining's on any of those lists. And The Shining is, uh, Kubrick's one of those filmmakers who a lot of people consider The Shining his only real horror movie, but Kubrick has touches of horror in most of his movies. Mm -hmm. Like, he's a terrifying filmmaker. Right. I mean, if you ask me, like, one of the scariest effects I've ever seen in movies in general is just Stanley Kubrick's um, dolly shots. Where, <laughs> you know, in a movie like A Clockwork Orange, where just the relentlessness of his camera. Like, right, that's right. the thing that's terrifying in a lot of Kubrick movies is the sense of the inevitable. Like, yeah. something terrible is coming at you. It is not stopping no matter what you do, it's coming. I mean, Stanley Kubrick is like that movie It Follows from the last second. That could just be about like Stanley Kubrick's Steadicam. And right. um, so while The Shining is his own, you know, in some ways his only horror movie, but, you know, Full Metal Jacket, 2001, all of these movies have 
terrified. Yeah. Some of those movies have bits that are scarier than any of the other movies we're going to talk about. Doctor Strange Love talks yeah, about right. uh, nuclear war. Yeah. And uh, and and yeah, absolutely. And I, so I think as 1980 kicks in, and we I guess have to mention Alien as well, the first Ridley Scott film that just came out. It was probably made right around the same time as as The Shining. Let's be honest. Yeah. Kubrick shot for a yeah. long time. Ridley Scott didn't have that luxury. So. Uh, so there's definitely something in the air. Hollywood is starting to look at the horror genre and say, yeah, we could, we could reliably put money in this and it'll make its money back at least, probably double it, probably triple it. And it kind of gave the go-ahead for more mainstream f- filmmakers to go there. And, of course, you've got Poltergeist, which was an enorm- enormous success that Spielberg wrote. Yes. And... Maybe kind of directed some of it. That's the old rumor. <laughs> Poltergeist, very good, very scary movie. That's still a family film, right? It's it's it, it was it was PG, it was scary as hell, but you know it didn't get into the areas that Friday the Thirteenth would get in. No, it's certainly not a slasher movie. I mean, Poltergeist is another one of my favorites from the eighties, and uh, the, you know the rumor that Steven Spielberg directed it is fun, but you know it really kind of shits on the great. Toby Hooper, <laughs> right? So who's not? A I mean, hack. Toby Hooper, <laughs> right? You know, so it'd be one thing if Toby Hooper's other movies sucked, but right, a lot of them are quite good. So well, I mean, he's there is a name I guess needs to be mentioned when talking about horror at all, sure. right? You got Texas Chainsaw Massacre, sort of the blueprint for the lower budget gore fest. I mean, yeah, th- that, I mean, that, that, that was it. It's a late 70s movie along with Halloween. Those are kind of the two templates for the slasher right. movie. And then, and, you know, the first Friday 13th was literally 1980, 8-0. But, yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which um, the original one is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, really just up there with deliverance about, you know, paranoia about right. small towns. And right, stuff. right, right. The fear <laughs> of the, the, you know, the flyover country. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> But it's great. And then, you know, one of the movies I meant to rewatch for this pod that I did not, Andre, have you ever seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2? No. It is, uh, a lot of people say it's great. It's much more satirical. Like, it really gets into the Leatherface's family. And um, I remember seeing the posters for that movie at every video store in the 80s and 90s. And just as right. a child... I know that poster very scared well. the hell out of me. Like, you're like, what is going right. on there? Yeah. You're like, I, I saw the poster so many times and I'm one of those classic, like, I want to see it and at the same time, I want no part of that. Yep, yep, yeah. Pretty, uh, pretty memorable artwork. Yeah, so sorry we don't have more to say about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. But well, Toby Hooper did sex change on Massacre, he did Poltergeist. He did a movie that came recommended to me called Life Force. Have you ever seen Life Force? Yes, I have seen Life Force. Space Vampire movie. Right, 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 right. Um, I don't know if I'd call it good. I love it. I love (laughs) the Life Force. But I do remember watching it, and there was, you know, at that point, like, science fiction has very, very quickly in the 80s, you know, stuck its evil little claws into into the genre of the horror, right? I mean, what was great about the 80s, is, and you look over these films, is how quickly horror films in the 80s started blending genres. So right away, you got the, you know, you got the comedic elements of the horror film. Like, like you know, there's not a lot of comedy in The Shining, not a lot of comedy in Poltergeist, let's no. say. But, uh, but then you get 
like Ghostbusters, which is an outright comedy. But but beyond that, you have comedy sneaking its way into the Freddy films. Uh, you have you have comedy being really, really uh, a strong element in a lot of horror films because if, it actually makes sense. Because theoretically, if, from a psychoanalytical perspective, comedy softens you up, and then once you're softened up emotionally, it's easier to scare you. Once you've been yeah. laughing a little bit then, pow, you could get pummeled with some big scares <laughs> much more effectively, and filmmakers realize that right away. And I think a big, big element in sort of moving in that direction was from 1981, the American Werewolf in London. What sure. can you say? Yeah. It's, I mean, that movie was funny, yeah. but it was also scary. Yeah. And it was really disturbingly friggin' scary for a, for essentially it being a Wolfman movie. Well, right? and werewolf to this film. day, like... You know, the gold standard for the transforming into the wolf scene. The Rick Baker effects, fantastic, fantastic yeah. work. John Landis, of course, was the director of that film. It's masterful. It's great. It's, uh, you know, no big stars in it. Uh, just strong storytelling, excellent effects, and a really well-thought-out story, like where, like, you feel for the protagonist, uh, but yet you're horrified by what's happening. There's... There's some philosophical elements that are brought up. And, like, the sense of humor of that film always just charms charms the crap out of me. Yeah. And uh, absolutely love the American Werewolf in London and American Werewolf in London, right? Am I, am I saying it right? It's an American. American, yeah. One, one, that one American Werewolf, I believe. Just and. There were others, but yeah. this was one of them. Uh, and, uh, you know, 81 was actually a crazy year for the werewolf genre. Like, like that's, I think, I like the vampires, Steve. Sure. There's something about the werewolves that really appeals to me. Uh, I love them both. But 81 was like the year of the wolf in Hollywood. Like, there's <laughs> multiple friggin' werewolf movies, right? So you had American Werewolf in London. Um, you had The Howling. It was actually one of my favorite werewolf movies. I absolutely love The Howling. You had Wolfen, which is a weird, like, I don't know if it's even a werewolf movie. There's definitely wolves in it, and there's definitely, like, human wolves in it. Albert and Finney, right? Albert Finney is yeah. the star of that film, and they R. used to R. show that all the time on HBO. I remember I used to watch it just, just over and over and over again. Very, like, unusual and kind of creepy movie. And then, uh, what was it, In the Company of Wolves? Did that come out that year, or was that later? Might have been a little bit later. Silver yeah. Bullet, I know, also came Silver out. Silver so Bullet. You, so you had four, four major Hollywood films. Silver Bullet is more of a family kind of a yeah, werewolf. Yeah, it's another Stephen King. Yes. And uh, I can't remember, is that the one that Stephen King now claims he has no memory of writing? There's one or two books that he... Right. He, I, uh, he admits that he was so high on cocaine at the time that yeah. he just doesn't remember it occurring. And then yeah. it's like he's like, oh shit, it's on the shelf. Well, I guess I did that. He did. He, he must have. <laughs> he must have written it. I'm not familiar. I don't pay a lot of attention to Stephen King's musings. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Stephen, uh, if you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that was kind of kind of a fun movie. I enjoyed it. Gary Busey is really good in it. There was a time when people allowed Gary Busey to, to do things. To do things, yeah. Yes, and uh, he did a good job in that. He played like the crazy uncle and stuff like that. It wasn't scary enough for me, you know. They, I think they try to keep it kind of in the PG level. But really, like, if you stretch it out from those four films from 81, 
the werewolves were very popular in the 80s. Yeah, it's right. Way more wolf movies than vampire movies. Oh, for sure. The interesting thing about horror that I've noticed, and I've never heard a good explanation for this. You know, sometimes back in the 60s, people were able to trace it to social developments, but certain horror characters have, like, their time in their sun, and then they go away. Like, you know, there are a lot of zombie movies originally, you know, kind of in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. But in the 80s, not so much. No, zombies then, uh, were not big in the 80s. Yeah, and obviously zombies now, but uh, um, but not not in the 80s. Not no. a good zombie time, not a huge vampire time. There's some here and there, but you're right, a lot, a lot of wolf action. Right, a lot of wolf action, a lot of wolf action. What's, what's your favorite wolf-related uh, 80s film? You know, my favorite, I got, if I'm honest, is Teen Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Which I Teen mean, Teen Wolf, Wolf is good. Though Teen Wolf is a, uh, is a teen romantic comedy. It's not a horror movie. <laughs> With Michael J. Fox. At all. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, I often, this is kind of incidental to our horror movie podcast, Andre, but I often say Teen Wolf was responsible for a lot of uh, kind of nerdy, sensitive dudes making a very big mistake in their personal life. Because in, <laughs> in the movie Teen Wolf, like, Michael J. Fox's character, you know, his best friend's a girl... And then at the end of the movie, like, the girl's like, oh, I like you, and he doesn't realize it. And the end of the movie, it's like, oh, I should have realized my best friend yeah. as a girl has always loved me. Right. And, uh, you know, I've known several men in my life who in, like, high school and college may or may not include me have had a moment where, like, they're like, maybe this girl I hang out with has secretly been in love with me. And then, you know, you reveal your feelings to the girl, and the girl's like, no, you may have noticed I've never flirted with you. <laughs> like, that should have been the cue that, like, because if I was in love with you, I would have, like, given you some hint. Like, that, no. Like, I have no interest in that at all. So it struck a chord. Teen Wolf really well, struck a, a chord it, it, with it. It was a bad life lesson. I well, think. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's situational, Steve, but but I love I, I, I love Teen Wolf as well. It's a cheesy movie. It, do, it does what it does very well. It's not exactly a horror film, no. but it is a werewolf other than, film. Other than for my love life. But there's werewolves in, uh, like, Lady Hawk. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a werewolf in that. Rugler Hauer plays him... Very well, very yes. creepily. Uh, and, and again, The Company of Wolves, which is Neil Jordan's film, which is a weird one, right? I it mean, sure is, yeah. Is, it, what, is that a horror film, really? I mean, it's got, it's got scary things in it, I think. Yeah, it's... Uh, I think it's scarier than Teen Wolf, for sure. Certainly, it does have some scary moments in it, and it's kind of a feminist allegory. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that's almost creepy about that movie is that it's not all spelled out for you. Right. It's supposed to mean, but um, now the wolves are certainly scary. And then there's the idea that movie is, you know, if you're a woman, the idea that wolves can be anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> like around every corner. But um, that movie, I mean, I like most of Neil Jordan movies anyway. And it certainly has kind of Neil Jordan's like lyrical touch. Like um, even movies that take place in modern day, Neil Jordan always has a bit of a dreamlike quality to his filmmaking, you know. Lots of pans off that dissolve into another scene, and uh, I'm into that. I, uh, I I like Neil Jordan style, so I, I like the Company of Wolves. But yeah, it's it, it almost feels more like a fantasy than a horror movie. Right, but it right. certainly has elements of. I mean, there are a couple like 
really disturbing wolf transformation scenes. Totally, totally. And and the, and the wolf guys are kind of creepy and have interesting characters and stuff like that. So that that's kind of fun. I would that would be a decent Halloween flick, I think. Like yeah. like without being a straight up horror movie, it would be a decent Halloween flick. Well, and one of the concepts of the werewolf too is that the like the beast within, right? Right. Like that is the we idea. We can all associate with that. Sure. But uh, and the company of wolves certainly plays up the idea cuz it, it's got a um, like if you've never seen it, sometimes it has the reputation of being like a horror version of Little Red Riding Hood. Well, yeah. Like that's what I had heard it was before I saw it. And that that's not what it is. Right. I mean, there's certainly there's a there's they a reference Red, yeah, Little Red Riding Hood clearly, but, it, but that's not the retelling of the Little Red Riding Hood. But similar to Little Red Riding Hood, it's that movie is about how like within men is an uncontrollable beast that may rape and or kill you. Well, that's right. And uh, that movie really leans into that. Right, so. right, right. And also uh, female protagonist. And and this is actually another thing that I've noticed in the 80s film. All of a sudden, in the horror genre, the female protagonist becomes just as common as the male protagonist. So there's a shift. So a lot of horror films have a bit of a feminist undertone because it puts women sometimes in not like particularly cool ways is I, I think, you know, honestly, I do think the, fr- the Friday the 13th films are exploitative of, of women in terms of, you know, nudity and stuff like that. And I wasn't aware of that in high school, no. which was my mistake. I think I would have appreciated those films for a different reason <laughs> other right. than the murder and the blood. But now I'm aware of this stuff and that's that's part of the thing. And another element is how many horror films in the 80s essentially featured teenage protagonists where the movie's clearly aimed at a specific audience yeah but also puts younger people in positions of well agency power you know yeah, which is different in, in another episode on our 80s thing we're going to talk about some teen movies but yeah the teens are big in the 80s and that's certainly extended you know to the horror genre sure and um it's interesting you say that about the, the female protagonist, because as we said in, in the big slasher movies, you could certainly argue the main character is the killer. Right. But so then some of these movies almost have a like accidental feminism to them. Absolutely. <laughs> like, uh, you know, you make the woman, the teen girl, the main protagonist, um, partly because it, you know, there's more of an element of danger, right? Like, you know, there's not, like if the crazy, scary male guy, it, it doesn't work as well if he's hunting like, the football player you know that it's like there's you feel more concern if like the thin teenage girl is threatened yeah but then like you make enough of these movies sometimes like you know the girl fights back and then you become like oh look at that you've got a little bit of a right feminist icon there. interesting well you know i mean they start they, it started in the first halloween movie to a certain extent sure. right oh, yeah. then of course you had ripley and alien you know which was certainly a horror film yeah. uh, and uh, and it kind of carried over throughout the 80s and and again the 80s doesn't get the respect it deserves towards essentially putting women in a lot more protagonist roles yeah I don't know though but respect is a tricky one for that because as you said like especially all the slasher movies like very quickly like the point of those movies is it's a delivery mechanism for like wacky kills, right, and nudity. I right. mean, uh, the main audience of right. those movies are 
teenage boys. Right. So they can go. You can go see some boobs. You can go see somebody's like head put through like a cement mixer. See, nobody told me go. about the boobs, oh, and that's well, I, I missed out. But but crucial part. But seriously, these were expo- expo- uh, exploitation films. Yeah. And uh, as exploitation films, you could expect that from them. But but I will say that the phenomenon of the female protagonist really kind of spread out out of the horror genre to a very large degree because, you know, people always point at Jamie Lee Curtis and uh, Sigourney Weaver as the prototypes for the woman action hero. Uh, The movie Terminator, which is in many, many ways a horror film in itself and a genre blender, certainly has a female protagonist in Linda Hamilton. Uh, So this was starting to be a thing, uh, and only in the 80s did it start to be a thing because it wasn't a thing in the 70s, Steve. It, it was a thing. So I do think that there's some, you know, credit, a lot of credit needs to be given to the cinema of the 80s for bringing the women protagonists out in the before. And, uh, but the genre blending thing is another thing I wanted to talk about, which is sort of like, I mentioned Terminator, uh, and of course there's also Predator, another great Arnold Schwarzenegger film, uh, both horror films, right? So yeah, I mean, uh, we have separate episodes coming up about like sci-fi movies, but some of my, you know, if you're asking like my favorite horror movies of the '80s. A lot of times it overlaps with some of my favorite science, science fiction, fiction movies. Film. Movie. Exactly. And, uh, you know, two of the scariest movies are, um, you know, there's the Thing. Uh, John Absolutely. Carpenter's the Thing, Fantastic. and then um, Aliens, the sequel to Aliens. Right. And both of those movies tend to be filed under the sci-fi section of the right. video store, but are terrifying. I mean, The Thing is also, you know, one of my top five horror movies. And then uh, and Aliens is certainly terrifying. Yeah, it's terrifying, although most people think of Aliens as less of a horror movie, more kind of a combat film. You but, know, they think that, but it, it's... I, it's pretty I've scary. I've one of those people. Well, it's like, yeah, I've always like, oh, yeah, like, it's the whole thing, like, Alien 1's a monster movie, and Alien... Aliens, the second one, is a war film. And that's kind of true, but it's also, it, it's still frightening. <laughs> I mean, that's, like, going back to the relentlessness again. Like, right. that's what's terrifying in, about Aliens, is you're trapped in some building, and these things are coming, and they're not stopping. Like, there's no way around it. Right. What do you even do? Yeah. It's scary in a different way than from the first Alien movie, of course. And that was part of its brilliance. Uh, but but definitely the whole sci-fi alien thing. I mean, there were some friggin' killer, like sci-fi horror films. Yeah, the Terminator we mentioned. The Terminator is a pretty. It's essentially structured like a horror movie for most of it. I mean, you know, the kind of backstory as to how the Terminator got there is more science fiction. But you know, most of the movie takes place in the present day, and it's essentially a horror film. You know, right. You've got a monster. It's a monster movie. With uh, Arnold as the monster. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But this notion of having this unstoppable machine coming to get you, I mean, that's not far removed from your Jason or your Michael Myers. No, it's very Uh, much the same concept. So, I mean, it kind of works the same way. And, And here again, you have this sort of blending of genres. You have very, very mainstreaming of the genre of the horror genre. And um, the end results are some friggin' excellent films, Steve. What's, 
Let's start naming them out. Screw it. Let's just jump right to the chase. Let's talk about some of our favorite horror films of the 80s. Go. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I'm going to say some of the ones we've already said. Like, you know, The Shining is probably my favorite horror movie of all time. Um, the Thing is way up there. John Carpenter's The Thing. Poltergeist, and then some of the really wacky horror movies, which maybe I'll wait a little bit to discuss, but like Evil Dead 2, well, and uh, some of Stuart Gordon's films, and um, Bad Taste. But uh, Well, I mean, I think, I think I'm so glad you brought up Evil Dead 2, because we were talking about the comedy mixing, and here is a, I mean, what's a better example of like that perfect blend of occasionally slapstick comedy and genuinely scary visuals than Sam Raimi's Evil Dead films, right? Uh, And made on a very low budget, super effective, and made tons of money. Uh, It's certainly relative to its budget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it made tons of money. That's It's all relative to the budget, right? I mean, the, mo- the Evil Dead movies, the first one was okay, and then Evil Dead 2, of course, was had a bigger budget, was more developed. Well, I just meant these things weren't like Ghostbuster-sized hits. Oh, my God, no. But, uh, well, Ghostbusters was a, was a phenomenon, and Ghostbusters also has scary things. and, and, and you know, it does have a couple of jump Unquestionably scares. Yeah. a scary kind of a ghost movie. Sure. Another ghost movie... Maybe a, a sentimental favorite of mine is a movie called Ghost Story. Okay, it's, I think, from like 1983, I believe. And uh, it's a bunch of old timers who are haunted by a woman from their past. Okay. One woman. And uh, it's that simple. And it stars a lot of these aging Hollywood actors. Uh, Fred Astaire is in it. And, right. uh, and uh, John Houseman is in it. Uh, and it's got a really good cast, and it's really creepy. And Alice Creek plays the woman and the ghost. And uh, the movie has, like, these visuals that have really stuck with me. Like, like, I haven't seen it in many years. I don't know how it would hold up. But Ghost Story has visuals that really, to this day, scare me. And that's one of the things that horror films are, are good at, right? Yeah. Like, maybe the whole movie isn't great, but you're going to remember something specific about it, right? You know, and, and uh, that's, uh, that's one of my favorite aspects of the well, horror what, what are some of your other favorites from the 80s? Besides Ghost Story, Besides Steve? Besides Ghost Story. Besides Ghost Story. Well, I love The Fly. I, I have to put The Fly at the top of the list. I just saw it recently. It holds up great. It's a smart movie. It is a supremely efficient film. It is not a film that wastes a lot of its time or budget on unnecessary scenes. It tells exactly the story it wants to tell in exactly the way it wants to tell it. And uh, it's creepy, and it's sad, and it's tragic, and it's kind of moving in a weird way. It's really a successful, successful film. David Cronenberg, of course, Great director, one of my favorites. Yeah. It just really it plays well. Now, some of it is incredibly 80s. Yes. The costuming, the hairstyles, super 80s. Hard to get more 80s than that. But, man, it's it's good. And Jeff Goldblum is fantastic in the film. Really, really fantastic. Like, like he, he, is, he gives your basic Jeff Goldblum performance, but you realize how good it is. Like, like it, it doesn't seem... Um, doesn't seem his usual mannered thing. Like the mannerisms are still his own, of course. Yeah, Who it's, it's not as sticky. No, no, yeah. not at all sticky. It's it's serious, and you feel for this guy. And uh, and Gina Davis, who's I always 
felt had a little bit of an aura of amateur hour to her acting. Yeah. She's very affecting in that film. I, I really kind of like, watching it recently has made me really kind of grow my appreciation of Gina Davis's abilities. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, John Getz, who's the third lead, it's really a three-person play. I mean, there's really nobody else in the film. Yeah. It's really very confined, you know, small personal geometric story that happens to have this bizarre science fiction and disgusting aura. I mean, that movie deals in some disturbing imagery. Sure. And, uh, and again, it's still effective to this day. Certainly one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite uh, horror flicks of the 80s. I mentioned The Howling before. I love The Howling, you know. I, lo I love the werewolf thing. Um, Stuart Gordon, of course, is another person who uses humor very creatively. Chicago's own. Chicago Zone, and I, I love Reanimator. Now I know I'm in the probably majority of that. I know it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's not the hippest choice, but I love it. That movie is great. It's funny. It's smart. It's um, it has exactly the tone that it it is meant to have. Yeah, which is one of the hardest things for a director to do. Yeah. So I recently uh, watched From Beyond, another mm -hmm. '80s Stuart Gordon movie, and um, which is also great. <laughs> you know, it's about these. These team of scientists who are trying to—it's actually kind—they're of, basically trying to communicate with another dimension, and part of this involves uh, stimulating an organ in your brain, like a section of your brain that uh, can kind of really get that up to its full potential. Uh, it, of course, also is the part of your brain that uh, moderates sexual desire. Uh -huh, so uh, sure. there's—it's got the sexiness in this movie too. But um, Stuart Gordon's movies are very fascinating that they're kind of. To me, they're in between like Sam Raimi and Cronenberg. Cronenberg <laughs> is maybe a little more intellectual, right? And uh, Raimi is usually a little less intellectual. I right. don't mean that pejoratively. It's just like right. Raimi's more fun. And Stuart Gordon's movies are like they're they're kind of camp. Um, you know, there's certainly not parts of them seem a little cheeseball in the like exposition scenes, but then they also feel like they're purposely. She's, you know, right. like Stuart, you know, oh, absolutely, he's absolutely. It's a man who did like all sorts of interesting avant-garde theater before he turned to filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, then his body modifications are unique and fascinating <laughs> and still horrifying. Right. I mean, and from beyond, at one point, two of the characters essentially have like small penises that sprout out of their forehead <laughs> and then wiggle around and menace, <laughs> you know, the woman in the movie, and it's just like. It still works. It's still, like, horrifying. And you're I know, like, what is I going know. on here? I know, I uh, know. But From Beyond, I would recommend. It's on Amazon. I haven't seen one of his other big 80s movies. It's just called Dolls. Just I have not seen that either. Which I, I need to check that out just based on the other Stuart Gordon films. I can't imagine. It, it sounds great. You know, like, Stuart Gordon makes a creepy doll movie. I'm, I'm all in. If it was not for Stuart Gordon, we wouldn't have uh, The Human Centipede. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> Probably not. Yes. Uh, yeah. Stuart Gordon is. Um, get it. I don't know how you describe. Again, it's like imagine if you had like a Cronenberg, but like if you shot it in a way that you really want to just linger on how gross. Right. Like the fly. Like you know, like you see how gross uh, Goldblum turns into the fly. Right. It's gross, but. You don't, like, have, like, an extended dialogue scene with, right. like, a head coming out of his shoulder. And, like, right. That's right. where Stuart Gordon is. Yeah, like. he, 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 goes, he goes much further. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and, uh, 
Well, I guess, uh, like, if we're going through my list, I, I there's, there's actually a couple of vampire movies that have to be mentioned. Now, everybody talks about The Lost Boys. Sure. Lost Boys, again, you have the sort of congruence of the... Teen- Steve's stuff is flying around. Are we about to get hit by a tornado? Or a vampire. Is this... Summon the vampires. I'm telling you, it's kind of weird, right? It's very windy. Uh, Lost Boys so, like, iconically merges the teenage romantic film with a vampire film. Sure. And it's very effective. Joel Schumacher does it. I'm not a giant fan of Joel Schumacher. Another... Another rest in peace. Yes, yes. Another victim of the evil year we were living in. Yeah. I've never been a giant fan of him as a director, but The Lost Boys just works. I mean, it has the right amount of uh, trash, teenage angst, style, cool outfits. It has an excellent cast with Kiefer Sutherland and Jamie Gertz and uh, Jason Patrick and uh, the little kids, the the Corys. The Corys yeah. are in it. Very good picture, memorable. But my favorite vampire film is Catherine Bigelow's first film, Near Dark. Yeah. Now, that movie is really creepy, is unique. It's about a band of vampires that are traveling the modern-day West, just committing murder and drinking blood. It stars Lance Hendrickson and Bill Paxson and Adrian Pazdar, and everybody's really good in the movie, but, man, Lance Hendrickson is friggin' super cool. God, I, I love him in that. Uh, is that kind of the first of the, like, trashy vampire movies? It's, I would no, say I don't mean, like, the movie it's trashy, but, like, the concept. Right. Of, you know, it's, it's not it's the aristocratic. Redne- redneck yeah, vampires. Yeah. They are, these are, they're all, like, former Confederate Army soldiers or renegades who have been turned, and now they are doing what former Confederate Army soldiers would do if they turned into evil, blood-sucking vampires. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's really cool. It's it, I really recommend it. Like I said, Catherine Bigelow directed it. She, of course, is now acknowledged as one of our finest action directors. Uh, at that point, she was a woman working in a field that not a lot of women worked in. True. And, uh, and that movie's fantastic. And her follow-up was Point Break, which is a killer action flick. Um, so that movie kind of made her career. A lot of people revere that film. If you like vampire films and you haven't seen that, see it. Near Dark, really, really cool. Um, and um, I don't know, Angel Heart. I'm a fan of Angel Heart, Steve. <laughs> I saw that you mentioned that, and I wasn't sure that Angel Heart I would consider necessarily a horror movie, but I guess... Yeah, I guess it's got a demonic possession in it. It's got a lot of things that are... At the very least, creepy, right? It's got Robert De Niro with very long fingernails. Yeah, and playing killer contacts. Absolutely, and the movies, you know, it deals with voodoo and and you know demonic possession and Satan, uh, all of these things. Uh, I don't. It, it's got to be. You gotta. You gotta let me. You know, file that with a. With a horror. You got to do it. Well, I guess if we're including, yeah, like Aliens and Terminator, we could. It's, it's got to be. Now, here, the, the, the genre mix is a detective film. It's set up as a, your standard detective film. The, the, the guy at the center of the film is a detective. He is hired by this mysterious client to find this old time jazz crooner, Johnny Angel. 
That's right. Johnny. <laughs> and psychological horror ensues. Uh, and uh, I, I like that movie. I, I do watch it in, during the Halloween time a lot. It is creepy. It's very, very well made. That's an Alan Parker film, right? I believe so, yeah. yeah. Another director yeah. who died in 2020. There's a theme, right? It's weird. This is weird. Like, this is literally just coming to me. Like, how many of these guys passed this year? Yeah. Uh, kind of crazy. But, uh, but uh, definitely, uh, definitely Angel Heart. It's really Mickey Rourke at his finest before he became a bit of a horror show personally. Uh, and uh, De Niro's great. You know, I, I mentioned earlier Bad Taste, which is a, a Peter Jackson movie, which is, but I think when I think of Bad Taste, I'm mostly thinking of Dead Alive. Dead which Alive. Which is technically a 93 movie. 92, yeah, that's but, where... Uh, but it's still in very much in the Evil Dead Very much in thing. the Evil Dead. And, uh, it's so Evil Dead, it's like an Evil Dead homage, really. Yeah. The tone of it is precise Evil Dead. It's fun, you know, it's a fun film. I do like that. Early Peter Jackson, it's you would never guess that guy would be taking home an Oscar one day, mm -hmm. <laughs> because he, right. the man who made Bad Taste and Meet the Feebles and things, uh, just real gonzo horror comedy things, extremely in the style of Sam Raimi, uh, almost like a Sam Raimi clone in his early days. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's totally Sam Raimi clone, but it's still effective Sam Raimi clone. Yeah. And by that time, fortunately, Sam Raimi was no longer making those kind of movies. So yeah, he almost took that. over his shtick yeah. in a way. Well, I'll tell you a movie that doesn't have a lot of comedy in it, it, and another one of my favorites, The Hitcher. The original Hitcher starring the great Rudger Hauer, who had like three great roles in the 80s. Uh, one of them is a werewolf. Yeah. One of them as an android, and, and this one is a psychopathic killer on the road. I swear to God, they got the whole concept from a door song. Pretty sure. He plays a psycho who murders people while hitchhiking. It wasn't a great time for hitchhikers at that time. You know, no, like no. That, the 80s is pretty much when America stopped hitchhiking because of this movie, I think, because they, they didn't want to pick up Roger Hauer and have him slaughter them in horrible, horrible ways. But that movie's creepy. It is a horror. It's definitely more in the slasher genre, uh, but it does have elements of this sort of the, the relentless pursuit thing uh, that's similar to the Terminator, and uh, it's just effective, you know? It's trash, but it's effective trash. It kind of reminds me, you know, we're talking about uh, scaring people and what's a horror movie. Do you think Fatal Attraction's a horror movie? Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, there was a subgenre that came out that it could essentially be put in the horror movie category, and that's the from hell genre, right? So it yeah. would take people, it, it would essentially, situations that were just amped up to the extreme. Like, for example, what if your husband was a psychopath? Uh, what if a woman you were dating is a murderer? And that's what isn't the hitcher then? It's the, the hitchhiker from hell, kind of. It doesn't quite play like that. You know, most, most of the from hell genres start in an almost idyllic way, where they start in a way that's designed to misdirect you and, you know, oh... Jim and Jennifer uh, have an idyllic relationship. 
until Jim discovers that Jennifer is a cannibal. And that's, you see, that's more like the from hell genre. But that doesn't kick until the 90s more, don't you think? More of that, yeah. And and but uh, so yeah, I would say it's an offshoot of a of the horror general horror genre. No, sure. Yeah, that's I, I hadn't really thought of it until just this moment. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We you know a lot of thoughts are coming to us on this special Halloween episode, Steve. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm just I think I'm gonna watch some '80s horror. You know, a, a fun one if you want to revisit for the slasher genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I, it's hard to say it's good, but uh, it's a movie called Sleepaway Camp. Sleepaway, Sleepaway yeah. Camp. Sleepaway uh, Camp has one of the great reveals at the end of that movie. Uh, they made a couple sequels to that. Uh, so Sleepaway Camp was a classic. And then uh, there's also uh, Slumber Party. Which really gets it. Slumber Party, which is fun, is that uh, one of the things I discovered in my research is that originally they were going to make a parody of the slasher genre. And then somehow through the making and editing, they're like, ah, fuck it, it's just a straight up slasher. <laughs> Not quite funny enough to be a parody. Right, yeah. right. Well, they, they, Wes Craven actually ended up making a parody of the slasher genre yeah. that's actually pretty scary in its own right. And that's, that's the Scream about, film. Yeah. Well, Wes Craven was always interested in me in that he's a bit tongue-in-cheek right. at the same time. And I don't know how much of that is me just kind of retconning like things like Scream that makes you wonder if he was like chuckling to himself even when he made the more straightforward horror movies. Right. But, um, yeah, I don't know. So a lot of the problem going back to these slasher movies is a lot of them are camp and outwardly bad, but for the most part, they're not trying to be bad. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of like... As you said, they're, we're churning out boobs and deaths, and it doesn't need to be any better. Right. And uh, so, and in a weird way, I had the same problem with those movies that I had with, like, a Dario Argento movie, which is that I feel like it doesn't go far enough in any one direction. You know, like, it's not extreme, it's not scary, but it's also not, you know, super wacky. And that's where, like, I kind of like the films of Stuart Gordon or Sam Raimi that, you know, those movies aren't, I mean, Stuart Gordon's movies can be more creepy than scary, yeah, I guess. There's not, they but, tend uh, to be. Yeah, but like even the Sam Raimi's movies, uh, the Evil Dead movies I'm talking about, are they're not all that scary, but I just enjoy how far they go with it. You know, like we're going to just take things to like clearly absurd levels. Right. And that that's more interesting to me than, okay, the guy with the machete is, you know, it's all right. I can't believe he killed the girl upside down (laughs) like that it's just i mean getting back to those slasher movies and again pardon my ignorance but i don't understand what's going on so are those movies trying to say that underage sex is bad like like when or or maybe let's say premarital sex is bad because everybody who has it in those films get instantly gets slaughtered by this axe-wielding maniac is that what they're trying to say, Steve? Well, that's, like a, that's weird? interesting. That's what most people would think, right? That it's like prudish, moralistic. That the, the you know the viewpoint of the movie is that you know don't have underage sex or uh, you know premarital sex or you'll die. But then on the other hand, the people who are killing them are clearly the bad guys. So you can make an argument that like only like a prudish dick would care that people are having premarital sex. Yeah. That uh, you know like the the rest of the people in the world aren't 
killing you for having it. It's only like the true psychopaths. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's an interesting point. And that's, I mean, in some ways it's the definition of exploitative that those movies I always feel, if it is moralistic, it, it's kind of a like have your cake and eat it too moment, right. you know, like, you know, you kids shouldn't be having sex. We'll make sure we show you a lot of sex before we tell you you shouldn't have sex. Right. Well, that's a paradox of a lot of cinema, right? I mean, it's it's really be- you you start asking questions like right now there was a big controversy about a non-horror film on Netflix called Cuties that's apparently a film about 12-year-olds who get into some kind of a twerking dance troupe. Have you seen this movie? I have not seen Cuties, uh, so I can't speak about it. I'm just saying that there is always in cinema this sort of line between presenting an expose about something in a sense or being critical of it, even very explicitly, but at the same time still using that to titillate and attract an audience. Yeah. And that's that's always the case with, you know, that's why they say, well, a lot of times the bad guys are the best part of these movies because you kind of identify with the bad guys. And I know you know for a fact that we talked about this sort of identification change you know where where the movie's perspective shifts from victim to killer that kind of brings up a paradox in those films like yeah, are they but i mean in the slasher movies i don't think people are doing a lot of hand wringing over the like appropriateness of showing boobs you know well, like they're just like uh, right. i actually think it was more like mandated that the people the producers of those movies are probably coming to the set and being like you know what's What's your boob quotient? We got to hit like eight pairs of tits right. or else we're not releasing right. this. Well, again, it's a paradox because, you know, on the one hand, they are showing stuff that we're supposed to be repulsed by. Not, I don't mean boobs, I mean violence. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, they're kind of glorifying that violence and aiming it against people with boobs. Yeah, yeah. But, AKA uh, women. Yeah. Yeah, but I just don't, yeah, it's... I see what you're saying, and, you know, the it's interesting, the moralistic, you know, tone of the, like, what's the morals of the slasher movie? Right. right. Are they trying to discourage you from having sex, or are they saying that you should it's, have sex? It's all just, good. Yeah. Don't, don't be a crazy killer and let people have sex. <laughs> While at the same time making you subconsciously identify with a crazy killer. Yeah. And putting you in his uh, headspace. It's weird. It's a weird question, Steve. I don't know if we can answer this question <laughs> on this episode of Film Driven. But uh, I will say that definitely a rich, rich decade for the horror genre, the 80s. And uh, what can I tell you, Steve? Uh, that's all I got. Yeah, I think so. That's a good one. So um, we'll be back next week with another episode of the 80s, uh, another, another genre facet of 80s moviedom. Uh, So join us next week again. This is Film Driven. I'm Steve Haskell. Hey, I'm Andre Shane. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. (laughs) 